Let me pray for the Lord's gracious help. Almighty God, thank you. Thank you, Father, again for giving us your word, for revealing us to us yourself through your word, for speaking to us through your word. And I ask, Father, now in this time as we examine your word, that your Holy Spirit would have his way, his desire through this messenger to each and every soul, each and every mind here to perform the work, the teaching, the training, the edification, the correction, the encouragement, Father, that you alone know what is necessary in the hearts and lives of everyone here. And Father, if there be those here present who are outside of Christ, who do not know, oh God, the preciousness of salvation through Christ, of His grace, of His righteousness. Oh Lord, may it be granted to them today to believe, to repent and believe upon Him. To Your glory and Your namesake, Father. Amen. As we open this inspired letter before us, it's worth noting its author, Simon Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving us this, this great epistle. Simon Peter was a man from the world's perspective, wouldn't be given much consideration or deemed worthy of any significant value. His life was a simple fisherman. He was not highly educated, if educated at all. He wasn't prominent in society or politics or business. However, once the eternal call consummated in being chosen by Christ, and after living alongside and experiencing the kindness and power of God revealed through His Son, after declaring stalwart allegiance only to deny the same Jesus, and finally being sifted like wheat by the prince of darkness, Christ emptied and restored this clay pot, filled him with the life of the Holy Spirit, and at Pentecost commissioned him to proclaim God's Christ's gospel and establish the Lord's church upon this chief cornerstone. And in his second letter before us, he addressed the beloved Gentile brethren and exiles that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. Peter here is issuing a a dire warning to these believers of the dangerous enemies from both within the church and those creeping into the church. And he exhorts them to vigilance and resistance to these deceivers and scoffers. And his means of warning are through examination of all that Christ is and what he has done for us and what virtues are within ourselves and those that are observed who are deceiving the church. It's worth noting in this first verse just how Peter introduces himself. Notice the order. Peter surely was an apostle, one carrying the full authority to represent and speak for the living Christ. And we see that, and according to Ephesians 2.20, that his teachings and those of the other apostles were part of that initial doctrinal structure built upon that chief cornerstone of Christ. However, Peter doesn't flaunt his authority here. Note that the authority of his apostleship is somewhat softened by his status as a slave of Christ, a slave of his righteousness, a slave 
then an apostle of Christ Jesus. And we see this in Peter's first letter in 1 Peter chapter 5 where he addresses the fellow elders there as one of the fellow elders. And also Paul in, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians one twenty four that he would not lord it over their faith, but that he worked with them for their joy. The apostles learned this firsthand from Christ himself. In essence, Peter is showing us both his relation to and dependence upon Christ and also the dignity of his office. Now, the second part of this first verse really shines light upon his humility as present within himself and as an example for all of us. Here he shares three important characteristics of true believers before God. First, it says, a faith of the same kind as ours. It's a faith of the same precious value, of the same type, not according to a measurable amount, but of the same likeness, the same preciousness, esotimon in the Greek, and used only here in the entire New Testament. And for these Gentile believers in the midst of the suffering and the false teaching that's going on dividing the church, this brings great assurance to them that they share in the same value and weight of faith given by God as that of the believing Jews and the apostles. Second, received or is better translated, obtained by lot. Lanchano. And it's for all for all who are said to be in Christ have received, have obtained this glorious gift of faith that which was obtained by a divine appointment and not of any personal agency or merit or effort on their own. It's not something we can claim as being as being from within ourselves, even through even through some morbid introspection that we try to conjure it up. This obtaining of faith leaves no room for anyone to boast in their own faith as we hear so many today in other religions as if it was something that they contrived or earned or found. Third, we have by or in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is solely what gives our faith value, the center and foundation which is only found in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our God, His free gift of salvation according to His steadfast love and mercy. This term is only used here in Peter's letters. We must all fully depend on the resolute faithfulness of of all that Christ did and His righteousness, for we obtain this faith as a gift that resulting righteousness of the begotten Son is imputed to us. It adorns us in His beauty and sets the love of the Father upon us because we have been shown mercy and grace at His choosing. Peter's greeting in verse 2 is actually a, a benedictory blessing. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. And what may seem to be a simple heartfelt prayer Peter's actually introducing a deep desire of what he wants to happen in the lives of these dear saints. It's not an empty formal statement, and it may sound very similar to Paul's greeting to the church of Colossae. But this is an introductory bookend of this letter because 
Peter closes on this same note and theme in chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This grace, again, this peace, is not something innate within our natures, nor found in anything of this world, but is outside of ourselves. It is something only from God received from God, who alone grants true charity, acceptance, favor, love, and peace. And Peter desires this in greater measure for these believers. But what we must notice very carefully here in this verse is how this grace and peace is multiplied within us. It is in or through the knowledge of God. This knowledge is not simple factual information, data that we gather from casual reading or what we hear from another. No, the word here is intentional. It is epigenosis. It is a knowledge which enters into an object or person, and it takes an affectionate awareness of it. Not being merely satisfied with an outward relation to it, but seeks to pursue, to enter into it, and lay hold of that object. It is a heart of knowledge that transforms the infections, the desires, the devotions, and the will. Our knowing God is the only means by which His grace and peace increase. They become large and powerful in and through our lives. And if we desire to be an aroma of grace to others in this world, and if we want to truly enjoy God's peace, not only peace from His wrath, but peace that surpasses all human reasoning in the midst of any trial and suffering, then our knowledge of and in Him must grow. And we must not, we must be careful not to think of this grace as a mere single deposit in our lives. But it is a deposit that must be fanned by the flames of God's Word and truth, which will, which will and must increase and continue to lead to true godliness and eternal life which according to John seventeen three, which you all know, eternal life is knowing the true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Now in verse 3, Peter begins the body of this letter, the main message by looking first at God's gifts to us, which are the basis of our hope. So in verse 3, he says, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His his own glory and excellence. Verses 3 and 4 are presuppositional truths for the exhortations and the imperatives that are going to follow in verses 5 to 7. Verse 3 begins with what is better interpreted as, as, since Peter is laying down the foundation necessary for the call to a life of godliness and the increasing virtues of grace. We must see that Peter is not describing some kind of moralism or even a synergistic work in the call of God to sinners. Any believer's call to godliness is granted, it is given by God and inaugurated in the present age by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are three aspects of God's calling work that need, we need to look at in this verse. First is purpose or goal. Second is power 
or source. The third is provision or the means. Now the purpose or the goal that Peter is aiming at and what we should all be aiming at is eternal life and godliness. A spiritual and moral transformation within and an assured hope for the life in the age to come. Peter heartily conveys his concern for the church in chapter 2 because of those who are now living corrupt lives, thinking they can have eternal life without any pursuit of rea- or reality of godliness in their own lives. These churches are being weighed down and deceived by professing believers who have actually come to deny the coming of Jesus Christ. And due to this eschatological perversion, they're now living licentiously. And this eschatological perversion is one of the differences between the epistle of Peter and that of Jude. True conversion of the saint results in a close connection and relationship between life of godliness, a life of godliness, and eternal life. True faith in a believer is not a mere life insurance policy to avoid the fires of hell. It is a life transformation deposit by God within that conforms the heart into the image and likeness of Christ. It is a life to enjoy Him, to please Him, to love Him, to rest in Him, and all of this by faith. And it is expressed in and through our daily lives. So the way of godliness and the hope of life will either stand together in Christ or it will fall together apart from Christ. Part two is the power or the source of this godliness and eternal life, which Peter clearly identifies for us in that it is God's power alone being created, being, excuse me, being granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Amen. Can you see where a broken and contrite and humble heart is a must here? Do we fully realize just how we must have everything provided to us and for us from outside of us? Whether you're here as a believer in Jesus Christ or not, you are still 100% dependent upon the provision of God to meet every need you have in this life. And of course, for the believer, it means we do not live passively. You all know very well Philippians 12, 2, 12, 13, where Paul says, We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This does, this does imply that we could never be godly or attain, attain eternal life if we do not rely on divine power. We're not talking about Christian faith being a mere set of doctrines that we are to mentally accept and then file on a shelf. It is a power to be experienced, a divine power granted to us for everything that we are to seek out, rely on, depend on, and thrive on. For Romans 8.14 says, All who are led by the Spirit of God which is the source of our power, these are the sons of God. It requires the power of God to come into your life in order to make you godly and to be a Christian. And it is the mark of godly sonship in a person's life. And the mark of this power is godliness, which flows out of us with a new love for the person of God 
to enjoy the things of God and the people of God and even our enemies and to walk in His ways. Power is only given to those who rely solely on Christ's righteousness and grace. So, you may ask, how do we experience this power? How does this power become a living reality in our lives? This is the third part. The provision or the means of that power. Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. So we see that both His grace and divine power are granted to us through the knowledge of God. Both are available and free to the believer to work in us for our good. But again, this is not having mere facts about God, but applying it to ourselves as individuals called by God to Himself. Just consider consider this reality that by faith we can see the glory and excellency of God the Father and to know that our Creator has come to us by His Spirit and through His eternal Word has said, Come, I'm going to show you my glory and give you eternal life. This is only accomplished through His power, that power of hope, that power of life, that power of godliness. One German theologian says it this way in light of John 6.44, God calls us by means of a glorious great, rich, and wonderful grace, which is worthy of His divine name, and by a mighty energy because His call is powerful and is also a drawing which renders our coming to Christ possible. Coming to verse 4, where God shows us His excellent action on the cross and that our calling is solely on the basis of His achievement and honor, not our own. But how? Look at verse 4. For by, or actually, or through which, these, which is His glory, His excellencies, His power, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Through His glory and goodness in verse 3, He has given us His promises. And although they are not individually defined here, Peter tells us what they result in. The result of these promises is to give us the way that we are reconciled to God. And according to verse 11 later on, we are reconciled into His kingdom. And so in verse 4, here to escape the corruption in the world and be a partaker of God's nature. This is why these promises are so great and precious. Just think of having available to you the promise of being able to escape from the dark tyranny of your own lusts. And now to be able to participate in, to experience and partake in God's own character. And this is a true promise. Is this not a very great and precious promise to us from God Almighty? There are the magnificent, these are the magnificent promises of the gospel. Believers understand that we were all made in the image of God and we were made in the image of His glory so that we could know Him and enjoy Him and live under His authority. As we see, we're made to. 
But we've sinned. We've done what we've wanted to do immediately according to the nature within us rather than what God has called us to. And this is sin. And this is what separates us from the goodness of God because God is good. And this is why he will not leave our injustices, our evils, our sins unaddressed. It is his goodness that separates us from him because we are not good before God. It's a universal condition for all men. This is why the knowledge of the glory of God must be promising if it is to carry power, which it absolutely does. We see this in Paul's prayer to the church in, in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now, just as in verse 3, back in Second Peter 1, we have the knowledge of our call to his glory that empowers us for, his, for life and godliness. So in verse 4, the promises of God are first positive to become a partaker of the divine nature. God has given us saving promises so that we will become partakers of his nature. And second, negatively, as we are becoming like God, we have escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So what does this partaking in the divine nature mean, or what does it look like? It is taking in his eternal truth, the word. It is righteousness. It is eternal life, joy, and peace. It is wise, and it is against all that which is evil, Satan, sin, and death. It is not merely a, a moral resemblance, but it is an authentic communion of being that begins in our regeneration and is consummated hereafter in eternity. It is the gospel for just as Christ is in his human nature embodied the divine, so believers are to become partakers of the divine nature. Peter is emphasizing two major points here in verses 3 and 4 that we need to retain and stand on in our daily lives. One, we are to be liberated from the power of sin that corrupts and destroys our communion with God and our lives. And two, be so united in communion with God and His likeness. Remember Ephesians 4.23. And this continuous sanctifying work, this synergistic work, with the Holy Spirit will come by knowing, reading, studying, digesting, trusting in His great and precious promises. Just as we talked about in Sunday school, we must seek out, we must strive to know these promises that are ours in Christ. Fix them in our minds and hearts so that when that lust or passion or temptation from within or from the enemy tempts us and draws us away, we're now able to know, to trust in, and see that escape that God has provided for us. This is the work Paul had in mind in Ephesians 2.13 and in 3.12 in working out our salvation and pressing on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Can you personalize this? Is this your individual reality? Can you sense here Peter's understanding of the already but not yet schema of the Christian life? So now in verse 5, we come actually to the, to the first imperative of this, this letter. We've laid down all the indicative now. All that God in and through Christ has done and has provided to us through His power, His granting us everything of life and through true knowledge of Him, granting His precious and magnificent promises that we may partake of His nature and escape that corruption in the world as the glorious benefit of that nature. And now we read in verses 5 to 7. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. These three verses are not describing in any particular order or fashion how we progress in this life. But overall, they do describe to us how we should live as believers, what virtues should be a reality in our life. There is actually an overlap of these virtues. But I think it was intentional that Peter started with faith and ends in love because this aligns with the rest of Scripture that through faith we're able to partake of God's nature and power of which love is the goal in some of our life, to love even our enemies and to be the light and salt of this world and to show others the way into the eternal kingdom of Christ. The thrust here in these three verses is that Peter is saying to to true Christians, don't stop pursuing growth in grace. We are to go on. We are to advance. We are to excel still more, as Paul says. We are to mature into the virtues of Christ, of His grace, and in the knowledge of Him. Can you hear the compelling call to a holy dissatisfaction with our present attainments? Do you see here the clarity and need for humility? No one on the earth, no one in this room has perfectly attained perfectly attained to all of these and no longer in need of any diligent sanctifying work. We all must continue to grow up in Christ. We begin first with faith. It is faith, a faith that is, of course, a gift of grace. And it is that saving faith, that saving belief that is alive in us. It is a faithfulness to Jesus Christ and to his promises This is our living commitment to the triune God who speaks to us in and through His Word, His Gospel. It too is ever-growing with all diligence. Next is moral excellence or goodness which will flow from a life of faith in Christ. Because works naturally flow from a work of true faith, by the grace of God we are able to take part in His moral excellence and goodness. Knowledge in verses 5 and 6 include both the propositional knowledge, the factual fundamental knowledge of Scripture, but also that relational knowledge of Jesus Christ, of enlightenment through spiritual scriptural revelation. This is first brought about by hearing and knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. But Peter is also meaning a growing understanding of God and His will. 
And this is especially in the sense of the practical wisdom of knowing God in Christ's likeness. Peter is also very aware of the tendency to become blinded by just sheer knowledge. So he adds to this knowledge a need of self-control. It is the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, that helps us to order our knowledge and our activity so that our zeal is guided rightly in the pursuit of holiness. Without self-control, we're like Solomon's description in Proverbs 25:28. We're like a city who, whose walls are broken down. Is a, this is the same man who lacks self-control. How sadly this describes the lives of these both these false teachers in the churches in Peter's day, as well as many in the church today. Both of them at the mercy of whatever comes through to them because of no self-control in lust and desires with no walls to protect them. I think of all these virtues, this is most critical in our day since we have at our disposal, we have within our means and our power today such easy means and so many means to please and gratify ourselves. So much more than the saints did in Peter's day. Just think of how much in our day the opposite of self-control, self-indulgence is celebrated through our society and lives. What can it mean today for us to be increasingly marked by self-control as Christians? We see in verse 6 that with self-control we definitely need perseverance. We're not in this race as a sprinter. We're definitely in the race as a marathon runner. We need consistency. We need constancy. We need perseverance so that all of these virtues are sustained throughout our lives. We see this both in First Peter and in Hebrews. All the scriptural lists of characteristics and virtues of the saints because these are all an encouragement to us to keep going in the narrow way. And for these saints, it is a call to diligent perseverance in the onslaught of sensuality, much like what we face in our day in probably a greater degree. There must be a continuing on with all of these virtues to mark us out as true believers. Next, we have godliness. This is that God-centeredness in all of our relationship relationships. As he is truly the center at which the whole of life is found, it is only known and seen from us a demonstrated respect toward God and to everyone else. And what, at whatever status, whatever position, whatever nationality of life, it's the consideration and God-centered interest in others that leads us to these last two characteristics of brotherly kindness and love. These are brotherly kindness, a, a familiar, a, a familial affection. But for the Christians, it was not limited to the same physical or same blood family member, but to the whole congregation, much like what we experience here. And this was a strange thing to love beyond or outside the natural family, you know, to call one another brother and sister. But because we have been made to have the same heavenly father through the new birth, and being adopted into his family. It's a natural outpouring. It's a glorious outpouring. And it's the antithesis to the world. And finally, love. Not last and not least, but also not something 
we can even attempt to learn through some isolated spiritual training somewhere. But that which is seen and known in God's character supremely. God first loving us while we were in the depth of darkness and sin. God demonstrating His love to seek and to seek, seek us out and to save us. By Him sending His only begotten Son, we see this beautifully demonstrated in Christ. Then, when it's a reality within us and exercised in and through our sanctifying relationships in the church and the world, <clears throat> love becomes this beautiful splendor of God's reality, the God-centeredness in our life. It's the summary of all Christian virtue in Galatians 5. And it's interesting that Paul, after teaching all his teaching on edification of the church in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12 and chapter 14, right in the midst, he breaks forth with his chapter focused specifically on love so that our lives are used in love for the good of others. This is Peter's meaning here. Not just an emotion, not, not a warm and fuzzy feeling that we have. It's a virtue that it's always demonstrated through action. It is, it is otherworldliness to this unsaved. So as followers of Christ, we are also to love God and to love others as ourselves. A summary of the two greatest commandments. Now we come to verses 8 and 9, and Peter gives us a warning again, both with a negative result of disregarding this imperative and a positive promise in diligence. Verses 8 and 9 say, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. The diligence and striving toward moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love is not some optional or dispensable icing on the cake of faith. For every believer in Christ, the evidence that the power of God has been granted to you by faith is now that you are making every effort to grow in these qualities, in these virtues, in these likenesses to Christ so that you are spiritually fruitful and as we just discussed again in Sunday school, useful in the church, able to serve in the church. Justification by God leads to sanctification, the outworking of faith and the righteousness of Christ. The heart of this warning is that if in the pursuit of the knowledge of Christ, a believer becomes indifferent toward or careless in using the means of grace that God has fully provided to us, if these virtues are not increasing in measure, then there's a reality that you may fall. You may drift into destruction. This is what Peter says in, in chapter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. 
For those not pressing forward to lay hold of Christ, not relying on the graces of Christ, which have brought us out of bondage and darkness, out of eternal ruin, and they in turn are entangled with their lifestyle of sin again, they'll become blind. They'll be like the Pharisees. They'll be like the Laodiceans of whom Jesus said were blind even though they touted to be religious and spiritual. They will become like those who have their future promises of God blurred in all the haze of worldly longings and desires, polluted by all the temporal deceptions of lust and greed and pride. And looking back to what had happened to them before their initial forgiveness, the first love of Christ seems forgotten, a distant fog on the horizon, just an empty prayer and walk in a meaningless ritual of baptism. They become mentally blinded and slow to understand any more who God is and all that He has done for them. Those who do forget the preeminent article of the forgiveness of sins by and through the blood of Jesus lack the most efficient motivation to holiness, the Spirit, who teaches men to despise sin as the greatest evil. They will take flight and relapse will inevitably ensue. This is the reality of these blind false teachers. They wanted the right now, the immediate satisfaction of those temporal pleasures without thinking of the beyond, without thinking of the consequence and the final outcome of their souls. And now Peter brings us to the final closing verses with a therefore. It's a glorious exhortation in his final imperative to us. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter is not calling, not calling into question by any means the security of salvation or the calling and election of God, or the surety of Christ in His new covenant, that somehow these may be broken. What Peter is saying finally to us is that the election of the brethren, of the believers, is forever objectively secure. However, we must strive for holiness. We must strive for godliness. First Peter 1, 15-16 We are to be holy in all behavior. And we must become more and more firmly established in it so that nothing shall be able to upset our being sealed with the Holy Spirit so that we may not just be ready, but that we will not shrink away from Christ at His coming, but we will long and look forward to it. Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And these commandments, His word speaks of Him and godliness. This is so that we make our election sure and so that we may stand and not do the opposite, that of falling, or as Peter says, stumbling. 
those who live ungodly lives fundamentally and eventually show no evidence that they truly belong to God or that they have genuinely, genuinely received forgiveness. The diligence here, <clears throat> diligence called for here is not one, a one-time event. It is not a passive action that we just sit back and let the Spirit do what He wills. No, it is a decisive action that must be repeated again and again throughout our life in this earth in growing in our knowledge and grace and love for our God. So, we have to ask ourselves from these verses, are we making every effort to increase in the knowledge of God, in His character, in His will? Are we diligent in our faith? Are we making every effort toward moral excellence and power of self-control? Are we making efforts to cultivate godliness, to develop a heart for God? The Word of God clearly warns us against being lazy in our faith and drifting away from Christ, our only hope. We are to fight the good fight of faith and take hold of eternal life, to lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us, and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To advance and grow forward in virtue and knowledge and self-control and patience and godliness and brotherly affection and love. So that our hearts are assured and our confidence firm that we have indeed been called to share in God's glory and excellence. We have a glorious promise here that we will, we will, if we possess these virtues in increasing measure, enter that eternal kingdom as our final home. We will receive a rich welcome and our good works will only act as the signs that we are on the right way and that right way is only enabled by the free grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, O Lord, write these words upon hearts of flesh. O God, where there is hardness, I pray You would melt it. Oh Lord, I pray that we would not shrink back, but rush forth to the cross, to Christ, to seek His grace, to seek Your power, to know You intimately, Father, to truly grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to be a light, to be salt in this world, to magnify the glory of Christ, the name of Christ, the gospel of Christ, to not only speak, but to live the good news of salvation in Christ. Oh, Father, our only desire, may our only desire, I pray our only desire is You, to know You, to love You, to worship You with all of our heart, strength, mind and soul and body. Thank You for Your Word. Lord, make it a reality within us. 
Equip us, Lord, to serve well, to serve faithfully, to glorify Your holy name. In Jesus' name, Amen.